Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Dr. Palmer, just to, before we get started, um, we actually have a lot, a lot of people interested in pediatric urology. We have a lot of residents on the line, uh, medical students. I'd love to hear your path to where you are right now. What drove you to uh, pediatrics? Um, well, to urology was a fascinating story. I was an Einstein medical student, and I was sitting on the van going back from what used to be Booth, but New York Hospital, Queens, back to the Bronx with my fiance uh, at the time, now my wife of almost some, many, many years. Um, it was our last rotation in medicine. And I said, you know, I really like the thought process of medicine, but I'm really, and, but I love general surgery. I loved doing cases, but I didn't like the bread and butter of general surgery. And out of the back of the van, somebody says, well, what about urology? So I turned around and said, why are you listening to my conversation? And <laughs> And uh, so he told me what it was and suggested I go to the library, look through the journal, see if the topic seemed interesting to me, and speak to this guy if you wanted to do research. And um, that's how that all happened, it's just by somebody listening to my conversation. Someone butting in, they changed your life. <laughs> who now is a pediatric urologist in Charlotte. It's just, it's just very funny. And um, so my first, one of my first rotations during my first year of general surgery was ped surgery and I really liked it. And then we did two years at, back then. So the second year I did another ped surgery rotation and came home to my wife and I said, you know, if ped urology is anything like ped surgery, that's what I wanna do. Right. And my first three months in, as a U1 was on ped urology and that was it. Gotcha. And the case that tends to bring people to pediatric urology happens to be hypospadias and it was just, yeah very cool to watch what was pretty deformed turn into something that wasn't deformed. So that really was how I got to be, to do pediatric urology. Great. Well, um, that's, that's awesome to hear. It's amazing to hear people's stories, uh, especially when they're so coincidental uh, like this. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess one, one other question I have for you and I, you know, obviously the field of pediatric urology is, uh, different than other subspecialties in urology, but you know, you you chose to pursue a career in academic medicine. Um, are there parts of you know your training or anything that kind of pushed you to you know you want? Did you want to teach throughout uh, your entire training? Did you enjoy working with residents? Did you do enjoy doing research? What kind of uh, um, was it as? Uh, or two, I mean, you know, your, your kind of path to academic medicine, did it happen overnight as well? Or was it something that kind of just gradually came to you? So I've had a career shift, some of you may or may not know. So know. private practice in New York up until a year ago, April. Oh, wow. Okay. So I lived a hybrid life. I was in private practice, but academically, I don't have to, I'm not going to go through my CV, but I was very, very active academically. Um, I just finished my term as president of the, our society. I've written a lot of papers, presented a lot of stuff, but it's really, to me, academics is about what is your interest. And you can do as much academics or as little academics 
regardless of who pays your salary. So within private practice, I was able to have, a, a, I think, a fairly uh, broad and robust academic existence. And I know people in academic medicine, meaning that an institution pays their salary, but they have such marginal or inconsequential academic careers. Mm -hmm. To me, it's about what's your passion. And regardless of your economic circumstance, you should be able to make the most of that regardless. Um, so now I'm full-time at Northwell and building a new division with a you know, substantial number of new faculty that are now here and will be coming. Um, but academically, uh, the research I did as, an, as a medical student, just the idea of answering questions, coming with questions and answering questions for yourself and not depending on they say you should do this. They, I never knew who they were. And so that is something that, uh, that drove me to want to answer as many questions as I could. And that's where some of my, or many of my projects have gone. And I think teaching residents is probably one of the most valuable and rewarding uh, aspects of my career. We've had almost a dozen residents going to pediatric urology and I've had 20 fellows. So it's really, it's, that is by far the most rewarding uh, part of, of what we've done. And I will tell you that um, when you open up, not that you open anymore, you open up on your screen, but in, I have all the journals of urology from my old chairman gave them to me when I was, uh, uh, when I was a resident back from the 20s, I think was the earliest one I had. But when you open up a journal and you see your name not, and you see that you made a contribution, yeah. um, that's a very cool thing to realize that that's there for posterity. Hopefully it's valuable information, but yeah. information nonetheless. So, Well, no, it's amazing to hear. I guess the other question I have for you is in the world of... Um, you know, the, the private practice world, whether it's private academics uh, fusion mm -hmm. or just private practice, how, what is motivation to do research? Like how, in terms of the, the organization that you work for, are people motivated and is that backed by the group that you work for? Or do you see some reluctance or um, some unwillingness to help um, you know, people, or is it, is it encouraged, you know? Um, is it something that people, if they want to do, it's backed by the people supporting them? Um, well, most of, I would say about 90% of all the stuff that I did was either on weekends or at night. I see, so you really took it. it you know, it, I think in a private practice world, and in, re, in reality, it's in the academic world now too, because most people are based on our, are compensated based on RVU. So it's about productivity. So you have to strike a balance for yourself as to how much, since it's not compensated, how much time is valuable to you to sacrifice financially to be able to do that. So um, there are people, as I said, who only want to strike RVUs regardless and don't want to have do what we're doing right now. They'd rather be, if we could be in the OR, they'd rather be in the OR now doing their case rather than and having an opportunity to teach you guys. Yeah. Again, I think every circumstance is different. There were people in my group who had some interest and there were most people in my group who didn't have interest necessarily. Um, but you hope that you're in a situation, uh, as I was, where it was not discouraged. You really don't want it to be a discouraging uh, factor because then you won't be happy. Yeah, but you have to also decide how much of your 
your economically productive time is going to be contributed or sacrificed for it. And um, there's an internal value to it. And how much, it, how much value you would ascribe to it is going to dictate how much time you're willing to, to put into it and how much economic time you're willing to forego. So it's really, it's, if you have the fire in the belly, you'll find time. Yeah. Way to do it. No, I'm sure so many people are thankful for for your guidance and mentorship along the way. Well, thank you very much again for being with us um, again on this Empire series. Uh, very much look forward to your talk. Um, I'll I'll turn over the mic to you. All right, thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's really still odd to be able to give a lecture talking to myself and realizing there are people out there. Um, but I hope that uh, this talk will give you some insight for those who have not done any pediatric urology or those who haven't done pediatric in a very long time or those who may have an interest. And this is going to be more of a principal talk um, because it's really hard to cover all of hypospadias. It's like talking all about uh, real cell carcinoma in, in 50 minutes or so. So we're going to talk about hypospadias. And as I said, we're going to, there we go. Um, I'm not going to tell you that hypospadias is in one in 250 children and maybe even increasing in incidence. I'm not going to tell you that 10% of the cases will have an inguinal hernia or will have a uh, utricle. I'm not going to tell you that uh, CORD uh, is associated with hypospadias in the vast majority of cases because I think you know all of that. Um, this is a picture schemating the um, positions where hypospadias can be. I've always found it fascinating that they show you points, but in reality, it's a complete, complete uh, uh, spectrum of where the meatus can be. I mean, there are boys who are born with what's called the megameatus intact prepuce because the foreskin is completely normal, and you remove the foreskin, and all of a sudden you see this large meatus that's a little bit off-center. That's a hypospadias, and I'm gonna show you some severe cases where the, the meatus is down near the anus. So anywhere along that spectrum, you will find a, uh, a meatus at some point. And pediatricians will come up and say, oh, it's a first degree. It's not, not that important. Well, honestly, I think categorizing them as first, second, and third degree are all uh, is sort of silly because what you see when you start the case before you've made an incision and what you see after you start degloving the penis and where that meatus is going to land may be two very, very different places. So the degree really doesn't make any difference. And if I'm not seeing the patient or a photograph of it and someone's calling me up from some other location, whether it's local or from a distance, I need to know exactly if so in my mind's eye, I know what, what we're all talking about. So it's like mild, moderate, and severe. Your mild is my severe, and my severe might be your mild. So first, second, third degree, I think, are silly. So how do we approach this? Well, there are three principles to a hypospadias repair because there are three problems in hypospadias. The first is the curvature of the penis. Uh, that curvature is almost always ventral, but sometimes it'll be ventral and lateral. Uh, we need to fix the urethra. And in the vast majority of cases, the skin is dorsally hooded sitting uh, on the uh, dorsal aspect of the penis and not covering the ventral surface at all. So that's the trifecta. So we have to address each of the three components. 
So put a catheter in place. I'm gonna show you the furlet incision in a minute. We degloved the penis to try to get as much cordy as we can released. And if you think that there's more that you have to do, then you'll do it. If you don't think that, you, that you've gotten, if you do think you've gotten all the cordy released, then we do an artificial erection to see if the uh, cordy is indeed released. Then we have to fix the urethra. And there are a variety of techniques. I'm only gonna show you a few because there are about 120 named hypospadias repairs. Um, and then we need to cover up that, that repair because we really wanna to try to mitigate against leakage uh, between the suture and uh, the creation of a fistula. And then finally, the fun part of the case is to refashion the skin. That's really the plastics part of the case. So this is the furlet collar. So if you, this is a dorsally hooded foreskin. And Dr. Furlet, who was the uh, chief of pediatric urology at Chicago Children's, now Lurie's, which is where I trained, um, changed the way we approach the first incision of the case because it used to just be a circumferential incision and all these boys would be repaired and there would be no mucosal collar. His goal was to try to make children look like they were never, uh, never had hypospadias and you never had hypospadias and you were circumcised, you had a collar of interpropucial skin circumferentially. So he created his collar or skirt as some people will call it. And essentially here's the meatus. So we're gonna draw a line up to the corner of the foreskin on both directions. And then on the backside, we're gonna draw this curvilinear line, curvilinear uh, incision here. So when you make this incision now, incorporating this and this, you have these wings. This is the dorsum of the penis. So you have these wings and you can draw those wings to the front. And you can now envision that on the dorsal aspect, you have a collar. And on the ventral surface of the penis, you'll probably end up cutting off this portion here and this portion here and uniting the two wings in the front. And now this child has a completely circumcised appearing look to it. So the furlet collar is the first uh, step in the, in the surgery. And we have to correct the cordy. And cordy comes in all degrees as it too is a continuum. And the goal is to try to get it to this when it started like this. This is one technique for artificial erection. I don't know how many of you have seen this. There are people around the country that like sticking needles in the glands. I personally stick it in the side of the corpora um, because we're already cutting into the glands when we're doing the, um, the urethroplasty. We're gonna make glands wings. We're going to put in a stay stitch in the glands. How many more times are we going to invade this gland? So it's never been my preference to uh, stick a needle in the glands unless I need to. So uh, the, when this needle does go in the glands, the goal is to try to reach the tip of the corpora so that you're injecting the saline into the corpora. Now, there are a variety of ways of correcting cordy that doesn't correct itself just by degloving. And the one that's now the most popular and really most effective was described by Larry Baskin at UCSF. In his anatomic studies, it was very clear that the neurovascular bundle and the uh, branches of the, of the, uh, of the um, nerves are bare in the middle. There are no nerves in the midline of the penis, but they start out 
just lateral to that midline and drape around on either side. So you can stick a needle, you can do anything you want at the very midline. So the goal is to put suture, hopefully one, but sometimes more, at the point of maximal deflection. I do it in an inverted way so that the knot is buried from within, um, but others leave the knot on the outside. And the goal is to plicate that corpora so that the uh, cordy has been corrected. Um, I'll show you a couple of other techniques for the more severe uh, cordy shortly. So if the meatus is not far from the end, there are a few techniques that are commonly used to try to just in some ways sleight of hand, in some ways physically move the meatus. Um, this is the magpie, which was popularized in, in uh, Philadelphia by Dr. Duckett, who really was one of the giants of hypospadias surgery and coined the term hypospadiology. And the magpie, which has been modified many times since, um, probably because people chose the wrong case to do a magpie. Um, essentially, you're going to cut out the bridge, which you'll commonly see in a very distal hypospadias. And by removing this bridge, you're creating a much larger meatus. But then what he did was to incise the skin on the mucosal collar aspect, and then he would hoist up so that you're essentially bringing the glands together. So there isn't a lot done to the meatus but there's more done to the glands to try to make it more of a cone and bring the meatus more to the center. And that's the finished product. The gap repair is like a tear short tip without incising the urethral plate because the tip is a newcomer, even though it's the most widely used repair in, in the world. But this is a short tear tube essentially. So the meatus is on the glands and an incision is made so that you can tubularize this mucosa. So this was described by Zayans, who was about 10 years ahead of me in fellowship, and also an outstanding hypospadias surgeon who now too is at CHOP. So he trims, I, I incise, but he trims this, and then essentially leaves you with a bare area of uh, deepithelialized tissue, which you're going to suture together and create a tube and then finish the, the glands plasty. So here's the tip, uh, or some people will call it a snodgrass. I don't call it a snodgrass for a variety of reasons because a snodgrass gives him full credit for the entire repair when in reality it's a modification of a surgery that's 120 years old. So the tiers to play urethroplasty is this surgery without incising the urethral plate. So we're gonna create a furlet collar. We are gonna outline the extent of our tube that we're gonna create. And just like in the gap, we're gonna incise deeply. So you're left with a strip of urethra that is then in the tip gonna be incised so that the walls are spread widely. This will all re-epithelialize. Then the edges of this two essentially free-floating flaps will be rotated ventrally, approximated. You can see that here. Cover, layer of coverage will be there shortly, and then the skin is refashioned and you're left with the hypospadias repaired. Um, the first person to describe incising the urethral plate came from one of our New York section residents. It was an LIJ resident named Mark Rich, who's now in Orlando for almost 30 years. And Mark was at CHOP uh, working with Duckett, and he published this paper uh, much to Duckett's 
unhappiness because Duckett was doing magpies. He was doing an onlay, which I'll show you shortly. And this was going to interfere with the, um, the goal of the whole world doing the two Duckett procedures. So it was, it was sort of really a, a quiet little secret for the longest time, but Snodgrass picked it up and, and um, really he's is credited with popularizing the surgery, but not inventing the surgery. So what other options do we have besides doing the tip? Because the one thing about hypospadia surgery is that you need to have a full armamentarium of options. And sometimes you wing it and sometimes you do it on the fly, but there are a variety of other surgeries that people have described. So this is a MET2. So here's the incision you would have made for a tear, sure, for a tip, but instead you're gonna extend it more proximally so that the, this length of incision is gonna be the same length as this. So you're creating a very long um, um, rectangle and you're going to elevate this portion, the proximal portion, on its blood supply so that this flips over and is an astomost. So let's say you have a very short urethral um, or very narrow urethral plate and you're not gonna be able to, um, to tubularize that. And you know that in advance before you've, oops, excuse me, before you've um, cut it over here. So if this is all still intact, this can be flipped over, sutured on each side, bring the glands over and you're done. This is a ducat onlay. So what John described was essentially creating a tiered kind of tube, but again, it's narrow. So you're not gonna be able to bring it across and you don't wanna incise the urethral plate. So you take the inner surface of the foreskin and you draw out yourself a rectangle and on its vascularized pedicle, you're going to mobilize this so that you can bring it down and bring it to the undersurface of the penis and do almost like a Matu kind of anastomosis and bring it uh, to the surface. So we have suture lines and we want those suture lines to be covered. So you have a couple of options. This is a long piece of dartos that's been lifted up off of the, the foreskin essentially. And this can be rotated around to the ventrum, covered over so that this way there's a not a so almost a waterproof tight, um, no su overlapping suture lines that can help to prevent urine from leaking. If you're working more proximally, uh, you might want to take tunica vaginalis that's covering the testis, deliver the testicle, keep this on its on a pedicle, and drape it over your repair. And then we have to cover it with skin. This is buyer's flaps. This is the the dorsum of the penis. So if we had our furlet collar, it was created out of the ventral surface of this. This is what's left is the skin. We're gonna incise the skin right down the middle. As far down as you need to do them, you're gonna rotate that skin across to the ventral midline and you're gonna excise the redundancy and close it up. Sometimes this has to come across to here and this has to come across down here trim off the, the um, dog ears, and it doesn't always look exactly like this. Some of that has to do with how the skin lays. So as my brother, who's uh, also a pediatric urologist, some of you may know that, um, he, always, he always says, just let the penis talk to you. It'll tell you what it, it needs uh, to be done. And when it comes to the skin, that's really very true. Just play with it. 
it's going to tell you what it wants you to do and then you just go ahead and hopefully do it well so those are the principles for a um i would say 85 percent of all of the hypospadias repairs you're essentially making the penis straight you're making a tube in a variety of different ways that are all pretty similar essentially you're creating uh, a tissue that needs to be anastomosed to the native urethra, whether it's the urethra itself because you incise the urethral plate or whether you brought tissue from uh, either the skin in a matu or the inner foreskin in an onlay, but you're bringing that tissue down, you're anastomosing it, you're going to cover it with another layer, and you're going to bring the glands together. And if you did a good furlet collar, you're going to make this boy look like he was circumcised and hopefully his meatus will look like it was never an issue. And that's the majority of cases, but this is a different kind of case. This is somebody who's had multiple hypospadia surgeries. Here, this is all really almost looks like a dog bite. It's just been macerated and um, uh, it's all irregular. You have all sorts of garbage, garbage tissue in here. Uh, and here you can see the edge of the glands here. It's a little less obvious. And then here's another case where the he's already um, had a hypospadias uh, done because it doesn't look like there's much um, foreskin here, but you can see there's really tremendous amount of cordy and you have a meatus that's in the, prox in the uh, distal scrotum. So this is an extraordinarily complicated um, hypospadias, and this is a bad hypospadias that's gone even more bad. Um, and clearly, this is more than one surgeon's uh, handiwork and more than one time that surgery has been done. But the principles are the same. The principles are that we need to, I'm sorry, let me get rid of this. Sorry about that. But the principles are the same. We want to make sure that the penis is straight. We want to recreate the urethra, and we need to recover the penis with skin. And as opposed to the Staples Easy button, this is not so simple. But if we maintain the same concepts, the same principles, the principles of being gentle with the tissue and respecting tissue planes and understanding that we want to um, try to recreate as best as we can, in some of these cases we can't, but as best we can, to try to create cosmetically something that has a real semblance to normal, um, you'll get there. Um, but just as there are multiple uh, types of repairs for the native uh, hypospadias, we don't have as many for the redo or complex ones. We stick with a smaller armamentarium that tends to work, um, but it's not perfect. So Tony Curry, who uh, at the time was at uh, um, Sick Kids in Toronto and now in Irvine, did a survey of uh, the pediatric urology community as to what their most common surgeries were, what their preference was in terms of cordine and for really severe hypospadiasis. And um, it was very interesting because there was no consensus. There was really quite a bit of variability. Um, and the tip was commonly used for those who didn't have a lot of cordine, 
But if you had a lot of cordy, um, then it was a matter of whether you did it in a stage fashion, which we're about to talk about, or whether you did it as a one stage, fix everything in one time. Um, but there was no consensus as the best way to do this. And it was interesting because um, historically, a two-stage repair um, was fairly standard um, until Duckett came along, and that was in the 80s. And John decided that you, you weren't a man if you needed to do a hypospadias in two stages. And John sometimes applied principles to cases that really shouldn't have done it. So he was fine making the penis really short if necessary in order to do the urethroplasty and get the case done in one stage. Um, that was the Philadelphia perspective, the Boston perspective, because in those days, there wasn't as much parity out there as there is today. But in those days, there really were those two schools of thought. And the Boston group really never had an issue. Um, Hardy Hendren was a huge believer in a two-stage repair. Fix one problem at a time, fix it well, move on to the next problem. And we've really come back to that being really more of the main say approach to the complex hypospadias. There's nothing wrong with doing things in two or even in three stages if necessary, as long as you get the outcome that you're looking for. I tell the residents and the fellows all the time, and even to parents, surgery should not be about me, surgery should be about the patient. And so if you're getting your jollies because look what I did, I got to do this at one stage, but it's not the outcome that we want, then you're really doing this for the wrong reason and you're not really benefiting the patient to the extent that you really should be. So um, it's interesting here that this was sort of the beginning of declaring that there was a split among pediatric urologists as to whether it should be a single or two-stage repair. So essentially this is what I've just said, the detriment of a two-stage repair is that you have multiple surgeries and multiple anesthetics. And as you probably know, there's concern about providing general anesthesia to children that are less than four years old. From a neurodevelopmental uh, standpoint, um, most of us really don't believe those data, even though there is a black box warning um, regarding administering general uh, inhalant anesthetics to, to little ones. But as I tell parents when they ask me about this, and I say, look, I, we just don't tend to think the, the issue is as, as bad as it's been made out, that the studies are very flawed. We don't have really good studies to prove that providing anesthesia for hernia repair is going to cause autism, while our extra fees that are done in stages, um, the cardiac kids, the omphalocele kids, the really bad craniofacial kids who all had multiple operations starting for many for day one of life and have had many long procedures and are off to college. How does that jive with the data that say that a general anesthetic for a reduced circ or a hypospadias might lead to autism? So um, we don't really know that that's really true at this point, but it's something that comes up in our conversations, not infrequently. So going back to the Cordy repair, we talked about the basculation a few minutes ago, but there are a variety of other ways that people have devised Cordy, and it doesn't always apply to the patients that have some simple Cordy for the uh, garden variety hypospadias, but more for the patients 
who have very significant core D like the photographs I showed you before. So the plication I showed you, this was the Baskin, this was the Baskin plication in the center. Uh, prior to that, before we really understood where the nerves really lay, the idea was to put plication sutures on either side of the midline. Um, but the concept of plication is still the same. You're going to try to take out the disproportion of the corpora and you're going to shorten the long side and keep the short side shorter. So you can see that if you have a patient, and this is clearly an exaggerated cartoon, but if you need to do a plication, let's start from the middle, let's say you needed a plication here and a plication here and even a plication more proximally, you're going to shorten that penis. The goal is to take that long side and bring it to the size of the shorter aspect of the corpora. So you could end up with a significant shortening um, of the penis, and that's not anyone's goal. These are called uh, ventral corporotomies or fairy cuts. This is what Snodgrass prefers. The alleged benefit of this is that you're um, not putting any kind of graft material, which we'll get into in a second, but instead you're making incisions into the tunica albuginea and you do them on both sides in parallel and that those will unhinge in smaller excursions the cordy and that this will then re, it'll, the, the gaps between will close. Well, the problem with that is that the, what's gonna close in there is gonna be more fibrous tissue and um, the, the cordy is destined to recur, whether it's going to be as bad as it was before or whether it's gonna be to a smaller degree, you still have a curvature of the penis afterwards. One of the guiding principles is that if you do a urethroplasty when there's cordy, the process of erections are really going to put a lot of tension on the repair. And so if you want your repair to, to either fall apart or to be under stress and potentially fistulize, then maintain the cordy. So this is an opportunity to have cordy recur. Again, it may not recur to the same extent, but having the presence of cordy when you're about to do your urethroplasty is not beneficial to the end result of the case. There are other techniques that have been postulated to be helpful. If you're trying to really save this urethral plate because it was a really good one, then the folks in France have mobilized the entire urethra under the neurovascular bundle and really just get down to the corpora. The idea is that if you can elevate this, <clears throat> you can just work on the, on the, um, on the corpora, on the tunica albuginea itself, and um, and try to release the the tissue. I haven't found this to be particularly effective. Uh, we're going to talk about dermal grafting in a minute, but an option would be to elevate this uh, rather than to transect it, and then make an incision on the on the tunica and put in a dermal graft. But I found that having an adequate length uh, urethral plate often is not happening in these severe cordy cases. And that uh, for a very mild cordy that you can elevate this, maybe then you can do a plication on the other side. Ross Stector, who's in Hershey, who's a really underrated or underpopularized but outstanding technical surgeon, um, talked about dividing the urethral plate and rotating the corpora uh, in order to fix the, um, the cordy. Uh, it's a little bit conceptually difficult to envision 
but Russ's uh, technique does seem to work very, very well. So let's talk about dermal grafting because that's really um, where the best repair of cordy, that's severe cordy, happens. So this was described in 1983. Um, my, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Levitt, um, uh, really was the first one to describe this in children. Um, and so this thing is now, we're approaching its uh, 40th anniversary. It's really incredible. So here's the ventral aspect of the penis. Here's the glands. Here's the meatus. Here's the scrotum. This is obviously an older child who has persistent cordy. So everything's been skinned off. Here's an incision um, into the tunica albuginea. And essentially, you just make it transversely because an oval will naturally occur from this. And you make this incision 180 degrees, essentially from side to side. Here are the, cor here are the, the corpora themselves. Here's the septum. We will divide the septum or trim it down a little bit so that we have nice, a completely smooth, rounded um, uh, edge to be able to sew our dermal graft from. This is an inguinal skin crease. The, the um, measurement of how much deficit needs to be filled will be marked out. We mark it with a, uh, with a marking pen and fill it in completely. So you have a purple disc that's gonna be incised. What you're seeing here is um, the skin that's being elevated. So the first step is to use a very, very sharp knife and separate the epithelium from the dermis. That's the hard part. Um, the way I do it now is I keep it attached. This one is not uh, as attached, but you just really try to slice off that most superficial uh, epithelium and you use the purple so you can see where you missed and you can take it off. Once that's done, the uh, underside is defatted, and that's really what's happening here. So you're defatting the dermis, and you're left with a nice thick oval piece of dermis, which will be inserted into this defect, sewn in place. And um, we've reported on it uh, several times, uh, and dermal grafting really is, for an interposition graft, the gold standard for um, repairing severe cordy. Others have used dura. Um, others have used tunica vaginalis. The problem with tunica vaginalis is that you have a nice rigid uh, tunica albuginea, and now you're gonna put this billowing floppy tissue in its place uh, to fill in here. So you can see where that could billow uh, if you didn't use tissue that was as uh, sturdy as the rest of the tunica. So the, the dermis is very durable. It's very dependable. If you shortchanged it or you didn't measure properly, you could always take another one if you wanted to. But it is a time-consuming process. Um, taking the, the dermal graft and taking it right and not cheating it because you really know how important it is can take you a, long, can take you a while. It does require a separate incision with a separate closure. And as I said, you may need more than one. So is there anything that can be used that's off the shelf and maybe as good as, a der as dermis and easier to work with? So. Um, lots of groups have tried SIS. Um, it, it's really fallen off in favor because it doesn't quite um, work as well as dermis does. Um, uh, we used it for a while. It wasn't, uh, it was okay. It works uh, fine if you're using the, um, the, the thinner 
version of SIS, but it just doesn't, uh, it, you could feel the fibrosis afterwards and the core D recurrence was significantly high enough to abandon it by most people. I've been using Alloderm. It's easy to use. There's always plenty. The smallest piece you can find will always be more than you need. And if you uh, shortchange it and you needed a second piece or you found that you needed another piece, you can still use the same piece. And this is a piece of Alloderm that's been sewn into place to correct this core D. And the principles are exactly the same in terms of providing your gap and to um, sew this in. So it's always sewn in this, whether it's dermis, whether it's alderm, whether it's SIS, doesn't matter. It's done with the tourniquet in place, obviously, otherwise it'd be spewing blood in your field. Um, after you've made your hopefully watertight uh, running suture, and we'll put a suture on either end and run 180 degrees and then 180 degrees, release the tourniquet, look to see if there are any gaps that are bleeding, put a suture or two or none, hopefully, uh, into those gaps and then you move on to the rest of the case. Um, so here's some thoughts and preferences of mine regarding Cordy, is that fix the Cordy first, make sure it's, especially in complicated cases, and make sure that you've corrected it before you even consider doing anything else, and even if that's all you do that day. If it's minor, application may suffice, but if it's really substantial, then you need some sort of graph material. I think dermal graft works really well. It's still the standard, but I think Alloderm, at least in my experience so far, has been very uh, promising. Um, I hope that paper will come out shortly. Um, it's, uh, I have a couple of revision points to make for the editors, and it'll be in, in the Journal of Pediatric Urology soon. Um, but there are a couple of things about, about any kind of grafting when you've cut the tunica albuginea, is that we know that there are a couple of reports that in the long run, 20 years later, because that's really what's important and what's missing, um, is that we report our pediatric urologists report their hypospadias and core repair experiences. The long-term follow-ups are few and far between. Um, there are a handful of papers that will provide 10 to 15-year uh, follow-up, but if you did surgery at the age of one and you have 15-year follow-up, um, there's a lot of life still left to live. And then the reconstructionist folks will then pick up these patients at a much older age, only seeing the patients who have issues as opposed to the denominator of patients, who, which is huge, who presumably, since they're not coming back later on, had good outcomes. So there really is a disconnect in terms of follow-up between what we're providing to the literature and what the reconstructions folks are, are contributing to the literature because they're seeing a subset, we hope, a subset of the patients who didn't have the outcomes that we were hoping for. So about 15% of the core Ds will um, recur, at least based on the information we have in our own literature, where we have the denominators. And then Doug Hoosman has reported um, uh, vascular leak, erectile dysfunction, in these patients because you've breached the, um, the, um, the tunic albuginia. So these are two long-term issues that really have to be considered when you're doing a, a, a dermal graft or an alloderm or an SIS graft. But the flip side of that is to do plication sutures or Nesbitt tucks or other procedures that we know also can recur 
or substantially shorten the size of the penis. Um, so, you know, there's a catch-22 or a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of issue with core D. So now the penis is straight. What are we going to do about this? So again, whether it's one stage or two stage, so the questions you have to ask yourself in making that decision is if there's enough core D to require a graft. If you need a graft, it's two stage. Is there enough skin to be able to tubularize the urethra? And if the answer is no, then you probably need to stage it, but you could consider a propucial onlay if you had enough skin to do that. And then finally, is there enough skin to create both the urethra and to cover the shaft? And if the answer is no, then again, it's probably gonna be a two-stage repair. So first stage was to correct the cordy. The second stage is a often a very long tears tube. Again, we're gonna make it, this is a meatus here, penis is, is already um, uh, covered with skin. This was the first stage up here, where you straightened the penis out and got rid of the dysplastic tissue. So now you're gonna make a long tears you're going to roll the tube, and you're going to hope that they live happily ever after. That doesn't always happen, obviously. So is there enough plate to use, and is there enough? Is the skin going to be good enough? Um, and so my experience with the long snod grass was actually pretty good, and I, that's still my preference if there's enough tissue to be, roll the tube. And this is, you can see, a really long tube, and this is going to be another layer that we're going to drape over this, and we're going to bring the skin together and should look pretty, pretty good. This brings it to the corona, did not bring it to the tip, you'll notice. We say, I, in those days, I was saving that for another day. Um, the longer the tube, the more complications. We all know that. So this is one option, is to do the, a long snodgrass. Snodgrass himself um, has published twice about doing uh, his modification for the longest, uh, long, longest cases. He's starting to move away from that though, by the way. The onlay I showed you before, because I mentioned in one of the other slides, the ducket tube. So let's say you didn't have enough skin to do both the urethra and the uh, skin coverage. So what you can do is make that same rectangle that I described earlier here for the onlay, but instead of draping it onto the urethra like we did here, you can turn this into a tube. And you can take that tube and um, connect it at the bottom and connect it to the top. That's a principle you're going to see in a minute. Um, but let's say you've already been circumcised and you don't, or you use the, the foreskin in another procedure. What are you going to do? Well, Free skin grafts have been around also for about 40 years or so. And uh, the skin grafts uh, that were described by Horton and Devine um, grew hair. And anyone who has seen a hairy urethra, it's really a very disturbing problem without a good solution other than taking apart a hypospadias. I have, I have exactly that same, same kind of patient who I did a hypospadias in 1997 He's a mixed gonadal dysgenesis patient that was reared as a male. And we did his urethroplasty and it was great. Never had a problem, never reoperated on. It was a penoscoidal hypospadias. 
and he came to the office with hair sprouting out of his meatus. And um, essentially that has to be completely taken apart, unfortunately. Um, people have tried nair, people have tried cutting it. Electrolysis is hard to do in a tubularized uh, uh, structure, so that's even very difficult to do. Bladder mucosa was described at Boston Children's by Dr. Hendren, where essentially bladder was open, mucosa was harvested, tubularized, and that was the anastomosis. And then buccal mucosa came along and that revolutionized everything because buccal has some of the same, same properties as urethral tissue. It's very sturdy. There's ample amount of it and it does grow back if you needed more. And it can be used in a variety of ways. You can inlay it into a defect within the uh, ventral aspect of the penis and then tubularize it. You can use it as an onlay, just like the ducket onlay of foreskin. Instead, you use buckle or you can create a tube. So when you're harvesting buckle, and we harvest our own, there are some people around the country that look to oral surgery to harvest it for them. But if you outline it very clearly and you avoid Stetson's duct, which is by the second molar, and you use stay sutures and put a lot of counter traction on, you should be able to elevate your mucosal uh, your your um, uh, muc buccal mucosa very easily. If you use some dilute epi, uh, that helps with hemostasis and also to elevate this. But like many tissues, take more than you need because shrinkage is never a good thing. Make sure you defat it so that inosculation will take place really well. Um, if you're going to inlay them, we tend to quilt them, and I'll show you that in a second. And then put a compressive, but not too tight, because again, we want this thing to to breathe. Um, and we use a, a zero form, a tonsil roll, and just lay it in place. And then if you're doing the glandular portion, lip seems to be a better tissue. Uh, it's just sturdier for the, for, the, um, for the glands. And you don't need to close the mouth. The mouth will close on its own in a speed that's really extraordinary. I, our, the kids are drinking the next morning and they're eating on the second day. So here's a picture of the mouth, obviously. Here is a drawn out uh, portion that we're going to elevate. Here is a portion of lip that would be used. And this is the bed of that uh, linguinal piece of tissue. If you have a defect that you want to inlay the buckle, here's the tissue inlaid in. It's quilted here. The goal of the quilt is to keep the buccal mucosa plaster to the to the uh, corporate to the uh, inside of the penis rather than to have any bleeding cause billowing and absence of inosculation so this is really here to support the and prevent tension on the repair you come back many many months later this is what it might look like and then this gets tubularized as though it were native tissue and then you can close the defect so this is a two-stage buckle but this may happen after someone's already had multiple surgeries or after you took away all of the other defects. And uh, so it may be more than two stages. It's two stages of the buckle portion. And then you want to cover it. And I'm just going to show you the procedure that we've been using now for many years. Um, essentially, we're going to take buckle. We're going to roll it in a tube. We do in the first stage, we want to make this penis prepared for the surgery. So you see that we have a nice mucosal collar, furlic collar. This glands is perfectly conical. 
We've, if there was a cleft here, we would have closed the cleft so that this glands looks perfectly normal, but doesn't have a meatus. It's all fashioned with skin, whatever redundancy is tossed out, and the meatus is left here. So we harvest our buccal mucosa to be at least this long, tubularize it. We're gonna attach it at the bottom. We're gonna create a tunnel underneath subcutaneously, and we're gonna bring it out through the top. So you can see that the only incision is a small one down at the bottom and the penis otherwise looks pretty good. So here's a short, I'm gonna advance this pretty quickly so you can see it. This is a video of it. Here's the stay stitch. Here's the meatus. We're gonna put, that's what the penis looks like on top. We put in a suprapubic tube and we're measuring the length of our buccal mucosa. We're outlining the that and we're gonna incise our meatus eccentrically. So we're really developing a nice flap so it's quite mobile. Doing it all the way around as you can see there. And now we're gonna make our tunnel. And it's just dissecting scissors, trying to stay in one single plane. And we're gonna dissect and spread and dissect and spread. For those who have done a Cohen reimplant, it's the same kind of concept. And those are the tips of our scissors and we're going to make an incision right in at the top of the glands where we want it to be and our scissors are coming right through the tip of the penis and yes it can be bloody as opposed to a pat walsh uh, prostatectomy hypospadias surgeries do bleed you can see we're making this meat it's quite wide because we don't want there to be meatal stenosis and this metal sound just shows you how soft and how smooth and how open that is. So here's the taking of the buccal mucosa. Here's the mucosa. It's gonna get defatted. There it is. We've now laid it on uh, the eight French catheter and we're gonna do a bunch of interrupted sutures to create a nice long tube. I just wanna make sure that's where we want it. We start our anastomosis to the tube. You'll see this is eccentric. We don't make a round tube. There's gonna be an end that needs to be anastomosed in a spatulated way. And we even made our incision on the meatus down at the bottom in an eccentric way so that this way everything is spatulated. When that anastomosis is partially done, we're now gonna do the, the fun part of the case is to bring this, this tube into the tip of the penis. And there it goes. And now the meatus is there at the tip. There's redundancy because we made our, we made it longer than we wanted to. Here comes our tube. We feed it, we fed it back in to the bladder and finish the anastomosis down at the bottom. There'll be another layer of tissue that we're gonna put over that. And then this is the meatus being marsupialized and trimmed off. And let's just come to the end in just a second. This is tunica vaginalis from the testicle that we're using to just close over the uh, proximal anastomosis. And that's what the finished product looks like. 
So another trial, three weeks after surgery, you can see the tube is here. It's sewn in with several, several prolines. This is our mucosal collar. So just to give you a sense of how good that mucosal collar can make a penis look much more normal. In the old days, this was all missing. And you essentially brought the skin right up to the edge of the, of the glands. And then this is somebody three years post-op. Looks pretty good. They don't all look like that. So I will tell you that the overall complication rate is about 35%. So a third of the cases will have a complication. Some of them are pretty minor and some of them are significant. So we had stricture in about 20% of them, official, which was very small and easy to fix in 19% of them. And a nuisance, which is the diverticulum, because you have such a great repair and you end up having to do a reduction diverticulectomy. But the success rate of this surgery with a much better cosmetic result and smaller incisions really fares well compared to the new long-term studies that we have um, from several of the major children's hospitals in the country. And if you look at the overall complication rate, and these are for proximal hypospadias, we're, you know, 38% for a two-stage in Toronto, 23% of Snodgrass's cases, I'm surprised it's even 23%, that figured it'd be zero, but that's an editorial comment. But Warren is really an outstanding surgeon and his complication rate, he keeps very fastidious, uh, detailed records of all of his cases. So this probably is really a, a fair representation and an honest representation of his, uh, of his um, complication rate. But if you look at CHOP in the Boston, as I said, there were two schools of thought. Well, in Philadelphia, there was a 62% complication rate and in Boston, there was a 53% complication rate. So our 37% complication rate, I think, fares favorably with these long-term studies. When it comes to skin coverage, and we're coming to the end of the talk, you have to be a little bit uh, um, innovative, and you have to try to find skin wherever you can find it. And this is an eccentric flap that's going to be rotated in to fill this gap. Little dog here that probably needed a little bit more trimming. Um, I also tend to use, tend to use uh, scrotal skin for penile skin coverage. So I'll create a diamond-shaped incision on the scrotum, keep it on its flap, uh, a vascularized pedicle, and use that and advance it here, for example, to bridge the gap. So complex hypospadias. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig, and it's still a complex hypospadias, and we can make it look good, but it really... Uh, didn't start out that way. And so sometimes you're lucky and you can make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. So the lessons that we've learned is don't be afraid to stage. It's often beneficial to do that. Don't be afraid to graft for core D. Um, buckle is good. It's hardy. It's great. Use it. Don't be afraid of it. If you're afraid to harvest it, get someone else to harvest it. Make sure that you have a lot of weapons. Uh, to approach these because every case is unique and you have to think about every case separately. It's not one size fits all, it's no size fits all and you need to be able to be nimble in your thinking and you need to take a step back sometimes, look at it from a different perspective and then decide what you can do to make this case uh, uh, proper and get the outcome that you're looking for and to do that re really requires a lot of patience. So thank you all, please stay safe, and I'm happy to entertain any questions that you have.
Thank you, uh, Dr. Palmer, so much. That was such a good uh, technical review um, of hypospadias repair. I still have to probably watch this uh, five or 10 more times to understand, but thank you. This is such a comprehensive review. We do have um, uh, a few questions for you. Um, Dr. Ernst um, asks um, in one of his uh, similar to use in Peyronie's, um, the, the alloderm use, uh, do you guys account for contraction of alloderm when using it for uh, ventral repairs? So I will cut it a little bit longer. I, I haven't really seen that it contracts much, but the rule of thumb when we're using dermis is to add at least 10% or so. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do the same for the alloderm. I just make it a little bit bigger than I needed to. I don't really know how much it contracts when I go back for the second stage because I've covered it with dartos. So I don't get right down to that. I'm putting my urethra on top of the dartos that I've laid there, not on top of the alloderm directly. But um, so far so good in the dozen or so cases that I've done and maybe that extra 10 or 15% of alloderm is exactly what we need. Right. Um, another question was, uh, does doing a fur, uh, a furlet collar impact the ability to do a ducket onlay later on? That's a great question. Um, sometimes it depends on the size of the foreskin. Um, it really depends on the size of the foreskin. There are some boys that have a very narrow foreskin. It's long and skinny. And so you may have to try to make your ducket tube, um, instead of a, a horizontally based rectangle it may have to be more vertically based um, i haven't had trouble i've come close to having trouble doing an onlay with a furlet collar um, but that's why you don't, don't just make your incisions when you get started you really have to study it and know if you think you're going to have enough of a, of a urethral plate that you may or may not need to do an onlay and when I draw my lines for the furlough collar, I keep the onlay option open. So you got to think about it, which I'm glad someone asked that question, because if you don't think about it, you, st you start to burn your bridges. Gotcha. Um, and I, this is a, a common question for a couple people in regards to your, you know, your onlay repairs, the various layers, what sutures do you tend to use for your repairs? And one person also asked, do you use local testosterone to improve tissue quality? So two great questions. Um, I tend to use 6.0 and 7.0 Vicryl or PDS. Okay. Uh, PDS more on the urethra, uh, Vicryl more on the, on the skin. Um, depends on the size of the child. Uh, the, there are people that will only use 7.0 the entire way, but I, the older the child, I just like the extra strength of a 6.0 Vicryl or a 6.0 PDS. As far as testosterone is concerned, I do use testosterone. Um, uh, back in the day, I used to use testosterone cream. Uh, some parents really were wary about rubbing cream on their child's penis, so we, I went back to using an injection. So we'll give it about three weeks before the surgery. And um, there is some controversy in the pediatric urology world about whether testosterone, while it may make everything grow and give you some more vascularized tissue, whether it makes the tissue thinner and make it more prone to complications. So there is right now a debate as to whether that should uh, be standard or not. Gotcha. And then in regards to application of uh, the Cordy, do you, do you use similar suture types? 
No, I use I use a permanent suture. It's either uh, my preference is ethabond, but otherwise it'll be a proline if necessary. Okay. But I'd rather use ethabond if I can. It's softer. It's easier to bury the knot that way. Sure. But it's a permanent suture, and it's usually five o or four o depending on the size of the patient. Gotcha. Well, um, if anyone else has any questions, um, if, if pe people are asking for your contact information, if they can reach out to you. Um, but thank you, uh, Dr. Paul, for uh, an amazing uh, lecture. The lectures will be available um, on both our YouTube page, Empire Urology, and the New York State AUA uh, website. If you guys tuned in late or weren't able to uh, see the entire lecture, please watch it there. We're also sending out surveys, answer questions, provide questions to us, let us know how we can improve 